pray that that would be true of all of us, that your praise is always on our lips. For only you, out of all of your creation in this world in which you have fashioned for us, are worthy of praise and honor and glory. And we long for the day when you will come again, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So get your Bibles out if you would. We're going to finish up our section in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. While you're getting your Bibles out, I'll, I'll be reading Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And while our, our Lord mentions worry prominently in this passage, really ultimately, this passage is about materialism. And the shaking of the heads, I think people can obviously see that. There's a 2012 Psychology Today article entitled, The Madness of Materialism, Why Are We So Driven to Accumulate Possessions and Wealth by psychologist Steve Taylor. This is what he wrote. I did not know this history. This is fascinating for me. In January 1848, James Marshall was building a sawmill by a river near present-day Sacramento when he found a piece of glowing metal on the floor, which of course turned out to be gold. Once, human, once rumors of the discovery had spread within a few weeks, tens of thousands of people were flocking to the area, struck by gold fever. Ships were abandoned all over the California coast, businesses closed down, and whole towns became deserted. In a little over a year, San Francisco grew from a shanty town of 79 buildings to a city of tens of thousands. Over the next few years, at least 300,000 gold seekers came to California. Now, what I didn't know was this. The effect uh, on the Native Americans of California was catastrophic. They were driven off their traditional hunting and gathering grounds. 
Their rivers were polluted by gravel, silt, and toxic chemicals from the new mines. Some Indian groups used force to try to protect their lands, but were massacred by the miners. Those who weren't killed by the miners slowly starved to death or died from diseases passed on by the immigrants. As a result, the California Native American population fell from 150,000 in 1845 to 30,000 in 1870. This savage materialism, and there's no other word for it, savage materialism, was typical of European immigrants' attitude to the new world of America. They saw it as a treasure house of resources to ransack and saw the native population as an inconvenient obstacle to be eradicated. Now, some tribes were so confused by the colonists' insatiable desire for gold that they believed that the metal must be a kind of deity with supernatural powers. Why else would they go to such lengths to get a hold of it? When an Indian chief in Cuba learned that Spanish sailors were about to attack his island, he started to pray to a chest full of gold, appealing to the gold spirit which he believed they worshiped. But the gold spirit didn't show him any mercy. The sailors invaded the island, captured the chief, and burned him alive. You know, the madness of materialism. Let's talk about for a moment here modern materialism. If you think about it in some ways, the, the gold diggers' rampant materialism, it was sort of understandable since they were living at that time in great poverty. And for many of them, gold digging seemed to offer an escape from starvation. But most of us in Western civilization, the industrialized world, don't have that excuse. Our appetite for wealth and material goods, which is still an issue for our humanity, it isn't driven by hardship, but by our own inner discontent. Our mad materialism would be more forgivable if there was evidence that material goods and wealth do lead to happiness. But we all know the answer to that question, right? All the evidence fails to show this. Study after study by psychologists has shown there is no correlation between wealth and happiness. Once our basic material needs are satisfied, now listen to this, your level of income, it makes little difference to your level of happiness. Once you have the basic needs met. Now mankind, and this is fascinating as well, is alone. Alone in his drive to materialism. There is no evidence that other animals live in a state of restless dissatisfaction and thus share our materialistic impulses. I mean, there is some hoarding that goes on for the winter months but they don't hoard and build up wealth. There's not an inner discontent in every other created creature other than in humans. So the pursuit of materialism is not the answer to the fundamental unhappiness inside of us. So the question that has to be asked is what brings real happiness? Psychologists have concluded and they could have just read the Bible and found this out, but through their own studies, this is what they've concluded, 
that true well-being does not come from wealth, but from other factors such as good relationships, meaningful and challenging jobs or hobbies, or a sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, i.e. God. Like I said, we know this already. In fact, even secular Hollywood produces movies warning us of the emptiness of materialism. Movie Cocktail or Wall Street or the story of stuff. And yet, we still pursue materialism. It's as if we are addicted to acquiring stuff. And with materialism comes another crippling disease. Worry. See, worry is the offspring of materialism. And worry is so debilitating, and if you just think about this for a moment, I took about five seconds to think of this, worry is so debilitating because it, it robs us of joy, it drains us of energy, it fills us with fear, it leads to physical problems, and it our thoughts are occupied with doubt. Now our Lord knows this. He created us. Which is why he attacks materialism and worries so relentlessly in Matthew chapter 6. And unashamedly he says the life for a citizen of his kingdom it's not to be characterized by these things. By materialism. Because real life is so much more than building up wealth and focusing on necessities. In fact, this is what our world, this is what our lives should look like. Remember this from two weeks ago? This is what our world should look like. These are the kingdom characteristics. This is completely different than the way of the world. I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly because you can went through them two weeks ago. And they all start with a P so we can remember them, but this is a, a total countercultural lifestyle. It makes no sense in today's world. You just take a look as I slowly go through these. I mean, and there it is, the last point. The citizen of, of the kingdom of heaven, they don't worry. And like any loving father, God does not want his children to worry. So he has his son give us three reasons not to worry that I just read to you in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Now we've already briefly touched on the first reason two weeks ago, so let's unpack this reason further this morning. And it's this right here. Worry is unnecessary because of your heavenly father. Now, who is your heavenly father? Because in one sense, this is the real source of worry. Well, this is who he is. He is sovereign. What does that mean? He's in control of all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things, including what you need. Yeah. He is omnipotent. He has the ability to provide all things because he's all-powerful. He is loving. He desires to give all things. He is faithful. He keeps his promise to provide all things. And he is generous. 
He gives all things abundantly. This is who your heavenly Father is, and that's just a fraction of who he is. And since he provides for the birds of the air, as we just read, who do not reap or sow or gather into barns, and since he clothes the lilies of the field more magnificently, I remind you, than King Solomon, the wealthiest man who ever lived at the height of his glory, and since he determines the days and times of our existence on earth, why worry about food, clothing, or your future? You are worth more to God than grass and birds. <laughs> now, you can worry yourself to death, but you can never worry yourself to a longer life. And since your days are already determined, it is foolish to worry about the future. And I remind you, there are secret things that belong to God that we do not know about. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. Folks, there is something that belongs only to God, and it is not a secret. And what is it? It's providing the necessities of life for his children. That is his category, his domain, his kingdom, his area. You don't go there. It's his job. It's what he does. If you just open your eyes and look at all that you have, he has done a magnificent job with that. And so as if to emphasize this point, you're in Matthew chapter 6. Go one chapter over to Matthew chapter 7. Watch the connection here. He's going to emphasize this point in Matthew 7. A very popular verse, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a sake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, have you ever considered the context of this verse? Jesus, once again, is reminding the, the disciples of the character of God. He is not evil like earthly fathers. He desires to give good gifts to those that seek them. See that? The question is, what are the good gifts God desires to give his children? Well, look at the context there. What's he talking about? Physical sustenance, right? The necessities of life. Bread and fish. The very things he's talking about in Matthew 6, 25-34. In other words, as long as what we seek in prayer is what we need, guess what? What will happen? He will answer your prayer. He will gladly provide. And by the way, isn't that how he instructed us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Don't give me what I need for tomorrow. Give me what I need for today. 
Ask for what you need, and God will answer your prayers. And I want you to be encouraged on this point. It's a very encouraging thought. Now, the second reason why we shouldn't worry is this. Worry is uncharacteristic because of your faith. And I want to show you something that, about the phrase, you of little faith. I don't know what version you have, oh, ye of little faith, or you of little faith, whatever it is. It's found five times in the New Testament. Actually, five times in the Bible, okay? One in Matthew 6, which you just read. Here are the four other instances where the phrase, you of little faith, is used. Here's the first one, um, obviously, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, stone of the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, the phrase, you little faith, is used four other times in the Gospels. Matthew 8, 24 through 26. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? So in this context, the disciples are worried about what? The length of their lives. See that? Matthew 14, 30 31. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, this is Peter, and began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In this context, Peter is worried about what? The length of his life. Matthew 16, 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? In this context, the disciples are worried about what? Food. Luke 12, 28. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, stone of the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? In this context, Jesus is speaking about clothing. So every time the phrase, you of little faith, is used, it is directed towards the disciples who are worried about food, clothing, or their lifespan. Did you know that? Very same three, three things that Jesus speaks of in his Sermon on the Mount. So a total of five times he directs this phrase toward us, his followers, his disciples. Now if this phrase was directed toward unbelievers, he would not say you of little faith, but rather he would say what? You of no faith. So it's, it, he's speaking to us, okay? Directly to his followers. But why? Why is he speaking so directly to us in regards to worry? It, because we should know better. It's just that simple. We should know better. The people of this world do not have the promise of provision from God. Unbelievers don't have that promise. The, the, the nicest thing, the greatest thing that you can do to anybody is to lead them to Jesus Christ. A apart from the fact that you have, have sealed their eternal fate in heaven, you have guaranteed them a comfortable life on earth. Because once that person becomes a child of God, he is bound by his promise to provide for his children. 
which he desires to do. So that's the best, greatest thing you can do to anybody. It has eternal consequences and consequences in the physical world, temporal consequences. Because the people of this world don't have this promise, by the way, if I were one of them, I would worry. I expect them to worry. And we saw that, by the way, last year at this time. What was happening last year at this time? We were in a global pandemic, and you couldn't find toilet paper. I remember going to Fred Meyer and seeing people carrying out gobs and gobs and gobs of toilet paper, and I shook my head. And I remember, I think I came in here the next Sunday and said to you, don't do that. You do that, I'm going to get in your case. God will provide for you. If you don't have toilet paper, we in here can provide for you. That is not how we live, Right? Which is kind of sad, too, that there are still things now that we can't get because we just won't work. America won't work. By the way, they ended unemployment benefits in Ohio months ago. They still can't find people to work. They're paying now hourly in Ohio $18 to $22 an hour for some jobs. Okay? That's in Ohio where the price of gas is $0.85 cents to a dollar cheaper. Everything is cheaper there. And they're paying on the same level, if not more, than the, than the West Coast because they can't get people to work. We won't get out of this pandemic. I can't get Kraken Oat brand. <laughs> Starbucks is out of caramel. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that? Yes. They're out of caramel. Oh. How is that possible, right? I got an a, 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 a ice caramel macchiato. I said, caramel my home, and I put it on this morning on my own because I have some. I wanted to show them I have it, you don't. It made no sense. I said, how is that possible? We just haven't, don't have it. So God will provide for his children, and if I didn't, wasn't a believer, I would worry. But the people of his kingdom, you know, here's the other thing. We have what is called saving faith, Right? Now, what is saving faith? It's the belief, now listen to this, that God will redeem them from their sins by breaking the bonds of Satan, pulling them from hell to heaven, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and giving them eternal life. Now, what's just harder? Saving humanity from their sins or providing food and clothing for humanity? <laughs> you know what's harder, right? Well, why do we believe that God's going to put us in heaven when we die, which is the greater task, but we don't believe God's going to provide for us a meal or clothing or take care of the length of our life, which is the far easier task? I mean, if you understand it this way, it sounds absolutely ridiculous to worry, doesn't it? Amen. And yet, you do it. And let me just say this. The command not to worry means that if we do worry, you're in sin. Amen. I don't want to put pressure on anybody, but you see it for what it is. Now, my point is this. We already have the faith. If there's anybody here that struggles with worry, but has no doubt that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, you're already living by faith. Okay? 
Now, when it comes to the, this world and how we live our lives, if we worry, why do we worry? Well, you're not applying faith. Thus, he says, you of little faith. Now, I want to be practical in this message. So how do I apply faith so I don't worry? So everyone get your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, I'm going to wait till you get there because I want you to see this absolutely astounding two verses that I hope provide some encouragement to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. How do I apply faith so I don't worry? The first point, it's really rather simple. But it's profound. Number one, you must have the resources. That's verse three. By God's divine power, he has granted to us, now look at this, everything. See that? Does your version say that, the word everything? Repeat after me. One, two, three. Everything, which means you lack nothing. You have everything. His divine power has given us everything. For what? Life. And godliness, okay? God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, okay? Now, the second point, you say, well, it's kind of repeating the first point. No, there's a big difference here. Second point is this. If you want to, how do I apply faith? You must know you have the resource. That's verse three. His divine power has Granted me everything. He's granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us. A baby Christian or an immature believer, they're saved by faith, but their experience of the Christian life is unfruitful because they're ignorant of all that God has given them. Everyone in you in here, myself included, have been in this condition. You come to faith in Christ, do you have any idea of all that God has given you at that moment? No. You have it, you just don't really know it. Right? And by the way, this defines and gives you an idea as to why some people don't move forward in their faith. They don't know. You should know, but they don't know. People simply lack knowledge. And now by knowledge, let me clarify that statement. By knowledge, I mean the truth that is within you. Because there's a knowledge about their law of things, but it's not really here. It's here, but it's not here. In other words, the temptation to worry, folks, is great. We all know that. But when Jesus faced temptation, how did he overcome it? When he was tempted by Satan, what did he do three times? He quoted scripture that he had memorized. So in other words, this knowledge, this truth, where was it? In him. And he simply brought out what was already there. 
This is the reason why I asked you two weeks ago to memorize Matthew 6, 25 through 34. If you're serious about dealing with worry, you gotta know the truth about worry, okay? So that's what I mean by knowing that you have the resources. The third thing you need to do to apply faith is you have to claim the resource. That's verse four, look at this. For by these, this is the, the, the everything that we have in the knowledge of him, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that, this is astounding by the way, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. To live out the life that God has for us. And specifically I'm referring to a worry-free life. To live the life of Jesus where the boat is almost sinking and what is he doing? He's asleep. Well, how could he sleep in all that? Well, he was tired, but what's the other reason he slept? He knew his time was not up. Now, he may seem careless, but guess what? That's the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's a careless life because God will provide. To live out the life that God has for us, a worry-free life, we must claim the promises of God. It is through these promises that we, you know, what does it say? Partake of the life of God. And do you understand what Peter is saying here? You partake of the divine nature. We have the capability, through faith, in the promises of God, to experience the same life that God experiences, which is a worry-free life. Did you know that? The experience of God in heaven right now, who sits in heaven and does what he pleases, who experiences love and joy and righteousness and peace at a level we will never be able to, we can experience that. How? Through the promises of God. We partake of the divine nature because you have his life already in you. And what is that life called that's already within you? Eternal life. He shares that with you. Now, everyone turn to Philippians chapter four. We're gonna look at a verse that we can claim to help us resist the temptation to worry. Philippians four. It says, be anxious for nothing. Verses six and seven. Philippians four, six and seven. And by the way, this is another verse you should memorize. When I learned this verse and learned this concept, I became relentless and really defeated worry in my life. As I'm not gonna worry anymore. My life is too short, I can't stand what worry does to me, I'm not gonna worry. And I applied this verse over and over and over again. It says, be anxious for nothing, worry about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I am to worry, I am not to worry about anything. Did you hear me? <laughs> I am not to worry about anything. You are not to worry about anything. Amen. That's not me. I'm not making this up. Be anxious for nothing. 
My part is to pray to God with thanksgiving concerning my need. God's part is to fill my life with a peace that protects my heart and mind. Now, why does his peace protect your heart and mind? Because anxiety or worry starts first with a thought that then, if you dwell on it, affects your heart and your emotions, right? If you put this into practice, it won't get there. What's protecting your heart and mind? The peace of God. So when I claim this promise, I will experience a peace, even though when I consider my circumstances, I should be worried. In that regard, my experience of peace makes absolutely no sense. You see, it's beyond all comprehension. You know, it's like someone loses their job. Well, how are you going to provide your family? I don't know. God will provide. And you just go on in peace. And people are like, what, what's wrong with this person? Right? It doesn't make sense to the world. We, disciples, citizens of his kingdom, put an end to worry. Now, I'd say that there is one more step to resisting the temptation to worry, and we'll get to that later. But I want to go to the final point, that worry is unwise because of your future. Now, I've been interviewed several times for pastoral uh, positions. And a common question I am asked, either on paper or in person, is this. What is your five-year plan for the church? I don't know if you guys ask other candidates this question, but I have learned that this type of question has seeped into the church from the business sector. Now, the scriptures do teach that we should do some planning, but to plan for five years into the future? Now, let's just say, for the sake of my illustration this morning, that I, as I interviewed at Bible Chapel, the search committee asked me the same question. What is your five-year plan for the church? Would the church have hired me if I answered their question like this? My five-year plan for Bible Chapel is to start off by teaching them how to experience God through cultivating a personal relationship with him through the use of spiritual disciplines. But during my first few months, I will plan for a seismic shift in our country as we elect Donald Trump as president. That will result in unchecked rioting. Since the congregation is older, I anticipate during the years of 2016 and 2017, approximately 10 families will leave due to retirement and job-related issues. I will also plan during that time for the removal of 16 trees that are a danger to the building, the finishing of the exterior white exterior with stone, the closure of a door in my office, the completion of the office and library, and the carving out of a cross on the tree outside my office window. Three and a half years later, into my ministry at Bible Chapel, I will plan for a global pandemic <laughs> that will shut down 80% of the country. I anticipate that we will have to do this ministry exclusively online, and when we return for in-person worship, we will require masks be worn, we will rope off every other pew, and buy gallons of hand sanitizer. And yes, we did buy gallons of hand sanitizer. I also anticipate in year four that the country will watch in shock as we witness the rise of a violent social justice movement in response to police-related shootings, leading to widespread protests, rioting, and deadly violence. During this time, I anticipate that churches will be persecuted. 
for holding in-person worship services, even though our marijuana stores will be allowed to be open for business as they are deemed essential. I'll be forced to address from the pulpit why wrong is right and right is wrong. Why our country is confused about their gender and sexuality. I also anticipate that the church will be lured into the social gospel and the social justice movement. And in year five, I will plan for a vaccine to arrive that will provide effect, it'll prove effective against the coronavirus, but there will be resistance to it, and I anticipate another potential lockdown of our country as a new strain of the coronavirus arises. That's my five-year plan for Bible Chapel, because we're at the five-year plan for Bible Chapel. Yeah, exactly. Now, my guess is that Bible Chapel would not have hired me if that was my answer. Now, I would have been proven right as everything I planned for came about, but the search committee would have thought, this guy is nuts. <laughs> I mean, here's the point. You and I, we don't know the future. This is why Jesus says in verses you know, 34, Matthew 6, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And since we don't know the future, don't worry about the future. The future is going to have its own trouble, so just wait until you get there. God is the God of today, and he is the God of tomorrow. And he's the God of tomorrow that he is today. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same what? Yesterday, and today, and forever. And guess what? His mercy is still new every morning. The Lord's loving kindness never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So live in the present each day because each day has enough trouble of its own. Take the resources of today for the needs of today or you will lose the joy of today. You hear me? Enjoy today. You see, anxiety tries to rob you of the joy of today by worrying about tomorrow. But this is not the experience of life that God wants for his children. So don't be like the Gentiles, Jesus says. Don't be like unbelievers who lose their joy because of tomorrow. Don't miss the victory God gives you today. Live in the light of each day in fullness of joy that day brings. Take all the resources God supplies for that day and use them. Now the reason Jesus says this, and we have to remember this point, two points. Number one, don't forget this, nobody in here is promised tomorrow. Remember James 4? Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. That's why I always just laugh at. We used to do this, by the way, in campus ministry. We have a five-year plan. Remember those things? They never worked out. Never. You're just a vapor, James says, that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So you're not promised tomorrow. And because you're not promised tomorrow... God only gives you strength for, guess what? This day. 
You don't have strength for tomorrow or, or next week or two weeks from now. Now, the final step to defeat worry and to apply faith to your worry problem is this in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is how you keep your heart and mind in peace and you literally crush worry. Set your thoughts on heaven. God will take care of the rest. It is his responsibility to take care of your physical needs and, by the way, everything else. If I'm to be anxious for nothing, which means I'm to not worry about anything, then whose domain is that to take care of everything for me? Yes, God's. What do we do? We get on about the business of the kingdom. So rather than worry like the Gentiles or the pagans by seeing the things of this world, seeking them, the, the materialism, seek first the kingdom of God, well, how do I do that? Well, the word seek really tells us. It means the first in a line of more than one option. So of all the things you can choose from in life to occupy your time, this is number one. This is the El Presidente. This is the head honcho. This is the dictator. The priority. Remember this? This is the one thing. The one thing. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And even more specifically, as I try to help you out here, it means this. Thy seek Christ's rule to be manifest in my life. The kingdom of God would be manifest in my life. I seek the kingdom of God to be revealed in my life as righteousness, peace, and joy. That should characterize the life of a believer. It's Romans 14, 17. So in our lives, when the world sees righteousness instead of wickedness, when it sees peace instead of conflict, when it sees joy instead of worry, what does it see? The kingdom of God. That's what that, this kingdom of life is like. So get lost in the kingdom of God. Get lost in the kingdom of God. And so again, I say to you this morning, memorize this passage. Memorize this passage. Put it in you and crush worry once and for all in your life. Amen? Would you stand with me as I pray? And we'll close with a song. If there's anybody in here that would like a prayer, that maybe you're, you know, worry is a real big issue for you, which basically everyone should come forward then, to be honest with you. But if you'd like prayer, maybe for something you're going through, please feel free to come up. We can pray for you. But I'm going to pray, and we'll close with a song this morning. Would you please bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we want to sing for your glory this morning. We want to give you all the praise. We want to put the spotlight in you. And as we close this morning, thank you for your words to us. And just for how, the kind of life that you provide for us. It is just so wonderful. And I pray that we would embrace that life and seek it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.